Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning, so if you'll find your place there. Solomon wrote, he said, who is as the wise man? And he says, and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? These are, these are good questions. We're going to try to answer those in some measure today. And he, he answers these questions with this, or he makes this, this comment. He said, a man's wisdom maketh his face to shine. And that is not the idea of a bald man like me, okay, balding with my face shining. It's the idea of this countenance that's expressed. His face is shining because of his wisdom that's within. It's shining through. And the boldness of his face shall be changed. Verse 2, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment and that in regard of the oath of God. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Let's pray today. Father, thank you for today, for the music that we've heard. Lord, I, I trust in our hearts we've participated in worship through song and expressing our hearts to you. And then also through the offerings today and ascribing to you the worth that you have in our hearts and in our lives. Father, thank you for the chance that we get to meet today uh, in peace and in safety and in freedom to look at your word. And I pray that you'd speak to our hearts as you see fit, that you'd help us, Lord, um, as we look at these ideas and find application for each of us individually. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon struggled with the vanity of, of life, and he, he wrestled even with the vanity of wisdom. And there have been others who have wrestled with the vanity of wisdom, and these were some deep thoughts I found this week, some people who have some wisdom and made some observations. And, and I start to understand Solomon's vanity more when I, when I read these. He, one man said, don't sweat the petty things, and don't pet the sweaty things. And uh, that would certainly be a true point of wisdom that might be vain. One man said, a shin, it's a device for finding furniture in the dark. <laughs> She's so true. Uh, one man said, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. You got to think about that one. <laughs> Women like silent men. They think they're listening. <laughs> then there's the vanity of wise questions like, okay, so what's the speed of dark? I've never wondered that, but maybe you have. What happens if you get scared half to death twice? <laughs> and if the number two pencil is the most popular, why is it still number two? <laughs> if you ate pasta and antipasta, would you still be hungry? <laughs> I don't know. And if you're born again, does that mean you have two belly buttons? I don't. I don't know about you, but I, th I think I'm born again. I'm not sure that this was the kind of wisdom Solomon had in mind. And even though he wrestled with the vanity of wisdom, and he does, and we talked about last week, God's sovereignty, and he wrestles with these things, he still understood this. Wisdom is a really, really good thing. And last week in chapter 7, we were considering the crooked things that God makes and that no one can straighten them out. And in order for us to properly understand chapter 8, we have to go back to chapter 7. So I'm going to invite you this morning, just keep your Bible right here, Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. We're going to be right here. I'll have a few more verses come up on the screen through the sermon as we look at God's Word and, it's, and, and just for greater depth and clarity. 
But in chapter 7, verse 11, now this is kind of the text where we were last week. It just preceded it a little bit. He says in verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance. And by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, verse 12, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. So Solomon here is recognizing the benefit of an inheritance. He's recognizing the benefit of money. We understand as much as Solomon did, maybe even more so, the benefit of an inheritance and we understand the benefit of money. We, we get that. We appreciate money. We appreciate if, if we are, 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 are lucky enough or positioned enough to receive an inheritance, we appreciate those things. And I don't have to explain that because we understand its benefit. But he's making a point here. Money is valuable. It is. Wisdom is valuable. But money is not near as valuable as wisdom is. Wisdom supersedes the value of money. And our frequent problem in life is, is that too often we chase money more than we do wisdom. So says, hey, they're both great, yes, but you know, we gotta make sure that we're balanced in life and understanding that wisdom's more important than money. And if we have to sacrifice one, don't let it be wisdom. And, he, and our problem is that we chase money too much sometimes. In verse 19 of chapter seven, Again, he's recognizing the value of wisdom. It's a really good thing. So verse 19, he says, Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. In other words, here's one wise man, and here are ten strong men. And the wise man has more value, and it's better to be the wise man than the other ten men. Now, we saw the tug-of-war competition last week. We, we all saw who really won. Now, I won't go into that, all right? Uh, and, 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 and we understand that strength and power and ten strong men. He's saying, no, no, one guy's better than those ten when it comes to the idea of wisdom. Wisdom is really good. But then Solomon makes this point. While it's so good, he says it's really, really rare. You don't find it everywhere, and not everyone has it. And we imagine that we can just um, get wisdom. Like, I'll just go get some. Like, I can get other resources. But even Solomon, who could get anything, couldn't just get wisdom. And so in, in chapter 7, verse 23, look there with me. He says, all this have I proved by wisdom. And he says, and I said, I will be wise. I'm going to get some. This is who I'm going to be. I will be wise. But it was far from me. I couldn't just go get it. I can't just say that and become it. I can't pursue it that way. Verse 24, that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? Like it is so far beyond even me. What wisest man in the world, and he says even wisdom for me, is far deeper and further out than I can attain. Wisdom lies beyond any of our ability to simply attain it or discover it. You won't find wisdom in a university. You won't find it in a book. You're not going to find it in social media or on a news website or broadcast. There was a man in the Old Testament named Job. You know who Job was. And he asked this question. And I have some of these verses on the screen. He said in verse 12, But where shall wisdom be found? Where do you, when you go looking for wisdom, where do you go looking for it from? 
Verse 13, he said, Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living. The depth said, It's not in me, and the sea saith, It's not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold. You can't just go buy it. Neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. Verse 17, the gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or pearls, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. It's more valuable than anything this world can offer. So verse 20 again, he asks the question again. Well, well, then whence comes wisdom? Where does it come from? Verse 21, seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air, destruction and death, say we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. Verse 23, where does wisdom come from? Well, God, He alone understandeth the way thereof, and He knoweth the place thereof. It is from a place. Verse 28, Job said, and unto man He said, Behold the fear of the Lord. Now that is wisdom. And it doesn't come from any other place. True wisdom is accessible only through God. Okay, back to our text. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 27. He said, Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account. Okay, so this is what he's saying. I have done inventory on real human beings. And what's his inventory? What's he looking for? What's his metric? He says, I'm looking for wisdom. And so one by one. Now, I don't know the process. I don't know what, what he, how he went through this. But he says, I'm talking to these people. I'm asking them questions. I'm making observations. And one by one, I am looking for, in these individuals, wisdom. And here's his answer. Here's, his, here's what he finds. Verse 28. Which my soul seeketh, but I have, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found. He lines up a thousand men. They come in one by one. And he says, only one man in a thousand did I find wisdom. He says, and among women have all those, all, all those have I not found. And the found here means figured out or, or observed or seen. He says, I, I, I found one man in a thousand, and I study women, and I couldn't figure them out at all, and I'm not going to exposit that, and I'm moving on, all right? And so, there's just some things in the Bible you don't touch, and I'm not touching that. And, and Solomon here is just saying, with all of my intellect, with all my resources, I can't figure out people. Wisdom is so rare. It's so valuable, and it's so rare. And it's not because it can't be found. It's, it's not a finite resource. It's not like gold. There's only so much gold. It's not like oil. It's, there's only so much of it. He says it's not a finite resource. It doesn't end. It's limitless supply. In fact, it's quite the opposite of being a finite resource. It's simply rare because people don't avail themselves to the process whereby it is attained. You have to get wisdom a certain way. And wisdom changes you into a certain kind of person. And people, the thousands that he lined up, they weren't availing themselves to it. They weren't looking for it in the right places. They didn't really want it. They didn't really want how it could potentially change them. And even when those who say they are wise 
in Romans chapter 1, Paul said, they're really fools. They profess to be wise. But even in our thinking sometimes, we're fools. And so now we get from chapter 7 into chapter 8. And, and, and this lays the foundation for our understanding for this thought this morning. Because we come into chapter 8 and verse 1, and this is where our text is. And this is where, in verse 1, things get a little fun. Some people, though it's rare, do have wisdom. They do have it. And so even though there might be thousands out there, you consider all the thousands of people who live in Tulsa, I, I think, and I believe in my heart, there would be a higher percentage of wisdom in a place like Eastland Baptist Church. I hope so. So he says, I've looked at all these thousands of people. He goes, wisdom, it, ex it does exist, and some people do have it. Even though it's rare, they do have it. How do we know? Well, their face is marked by it. Their face is marked by it. Look at verse 1 again, at, at chapter 8. Who is as the wise man? You want to find a wise man? He says, okay. And who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? Who, who's got wisdom to share? Who can, who can explain things from, from the depths? And he says, a man's wisdom makes his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. The face. It's the front of something. It's the visible state. It's the appearance. It, it, it's the look. Okay, so sometimes with my children, I will, be, I will catch myself, and I don't do this intentionally, but I love my kids. I, I marvel at, I marvel that, uh, you know, Elizabeth and I brought into the world, I'll never get over it, we brought into the world four human beings. And I look at their faces and I see a reflection. And, and even this past week, and um, Sophia didn't know this, so this might creep her out a little bit, but, you know, she's watching television and I see her profile of her face and David, my son, is sitting next to her and I'm just staring at their faces. I, just, I, 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 I love them so much. I am so proud of them. And I marvel at that. And every once in a while, they'll look over and be like, what are you looking at, Dad? Like, you know, that's, that's disconcerting to me. And I say, my response is usually not an apology. I just say, deal with it. Like, you're my son, you're my daughter. I get to stare at you <laughs> in wonder. And, 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 and I don't know how they perceive it, but from my perspective, my face is shining towards them. I have my heart so full of love, and I, I adore their faces so much. In Numbers chapter 6, the Bible says that the Lord's face shines on those who He loves. What a great text. What a great promise that God looks on us that way, that inside of you, He sees a reflection of Himself. And He can't help Himself. He just loves you. And He went to great lengths to prove that to you. In Exodus 34, we read about Moses, and Moses has spent extensive time with God. And in that moment, God had given to him, over these 40 days, God had given to him the, the Ten Commandments. And so he has these tablets carved in stone, and he, he's coming down up the mountain. And Exodus 34, it says he came down from Mount Sinai. And when he came down from the mount, he didn't know it, but it's the skin of his face shone. So he had spent time with God. And now he's reflecting this, this, this glory, this light of God. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and it kind of scared them a little bit. And it was so bright, they said, would you wear a veil? Because you're kind of creeping us out a little bit, right? And so he had to, but the idea is that in God's presence and through his wisdom, it impacts our face. And this is what Solomon is literally saying today. Matthew Paris was a prominent atheist and he wrote a piece for the Times. And he entitled it, Why Africa Needs God. 
And in this essay, he makes it clear that he did not believe in God. He rejected the notion of God, but he admitted that Christianity made a tangible difference in in the lives of the people he knew in his boyhood home of Malawi and in other countries across Africa. And he admitted the Christians are doing good work. They're caring for the poor, the sick. And he said this, I just like the way that they looked. And, And this is what he wrote, quote, the Christians were different. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. And he said, something in their eyes. That's what Solomon's talking about. Something different in the face. Can't put my finger on it, but I observe it and I see it. And Solomon says a man's wisdom makes his face shine. The boldness of his face, it's changed. Okay. But wisdom doesn't just mark the face. It marks the actions of an individual too. And so right after talking about how rare wisdom is in chapter 7, and its effect on the face. We read this first. Okay, verse 2. Chapter 8, verse 2. He says, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment and that in regard of the oath of God. Okay, this is where the text starts to get not very interesting. <laughs> and this is where the fun wagon ends. Because all of a sudden we go from talking about, that's cool, wisdom, wisdom's rare, but some people have it, it shows their faces, and he says, yeah, now let's talk about authority and submission. And you go, whoa, that was, that was whiplash? You know, that, that seatbelt just yanked on my chest? What in the world are we doing here? And the point is simply this, that wisdom shows on our face. And it shows in our spirit. It shows in our actions and our interactions with authority. And it is our response to authority. And it is how we interact with authority that we often can determine those who are wise from those who are not. See, God's wisdom makes a difference in the way we look, but it also makes a difference in the way we behave towards authority, specifically from the text. We are, all of us today, under authority, and I would say this with with almost unanimity, I think, in this group here, because we're human beings, we're all under authority, and we all struggle in some measure with authority. I don't think there's a person here that wouldn't agree with that. In some measure, we struggle, struggle either with authority that's directly above us, or maybe we just struggle with the construct or the idea of authority itself. Our sinful nature that Paul writes about so eloquently in the New Testament brings with it a rebellious nature that's especially hostile to authority. This was part of the first sin, sin's curse for Eve's sin against God. Eve's sin and one of the very first parts of the curse of sin was that she would desire the authority God would grant to her husband. Right away there's this rub and that rub has never gone away. We struggle with today. Women have struggled with that ever since. And it's much more true today than maybe it's ever been. And it's worth mentioning, side note here, it doesn't help when men abuse and misuse 
their God-given authority. But we're, we're, we're going to gross misunderstanding if we don't think that was part of the sin curse, because it was. Too many teens struggle with, and they resist authority. Yeah, they resist the authority, in their, especially from their parents. It's almost proverbial. And it ought not be. It's not God's way. It's not the way of wisdom. There's a constant struggle with authority at work, in the job site, the school, and government. Even those inside the church sometimes have a struggle with the authority found there. And, and there is this challenge that Solomon, out of nowhere almost, presents to us that we as a people would have a right and scripturally informed view of authority, and we would understand God's view of authority. Why? Because it's through the authorities that He allows that God chooses to govern the world. Look at verse 4 of the text again today. He said, where the word of a king is, there is what? Well, there's power. Real, tangible power. He's got some bite to him. Now, the king, we don't have a king, but I'm going to tell you today, just to broaden the application, this would be a person who's in a position of authority. This would be a dad. This would be a mom. This would be a government leader. This would be a, a, a pastor. There's, there's, there's power there. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Okay, he's not saying not to question it, but he's saying we better be guarded in our spirit and understand there's consequences that are attached to that. God instituted the structures of authority that exist. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul said, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Okay, whatever those are in your life, there are higher powers, and he said, be subject to them. For there is no power but of God. That man or that woman only has power because God gave them that power. The powers that be, now here's the word we struggle with, are ordained of God. Last week we talked about how God makes some things crooked. Well, I don't like that. Right. That's our sinful, rebellious nature. Well, I don't like that version of authority. I don't like that person in authority. But if they have power, he says it came from who? Well, it came from God. Solomon understood this. He himself was a king. Paul understood this as a subject. Even Jesus understood this. In fact, he was facing some trumped up charges against him or false accusations. None of it was true. It was all a lie. And he faced imminent death as a result. And here was Pilate. He was the Roman official who was powerful and in his hands he held the power of the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He had the power. No, he didn't have the power, Brother Daniel. God had the power. Okay. God gave him the power. But I don't like that. I don't either. It's what he did. And in John chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate wants to make sure that Jesus understands who's got the power. And so he says to Jesus, knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and I have power to release thee? I don't know who you are, Jesus, but I've got the power of your life in your hand. Whatever you say right now matters. What was Jesus' response? 
He says, thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. What a lesson for us. The power that the president has was given to him from above. The power that any world ruler has, the power that any parent has, power that any, any, any spouse has, the power that any leader in any position has, they couldn't have it. It doesn't matter their, their character, their virtue, what we like or don't like about them. They could not have that power unless it was ordained of God. And Jesus understood that. And there would be some men and women in similar positions today that could ask questions like, knowest thou not that I have the power to tax thee? And they do. Knowest thou not that I have the power to give thee a speeding ticket? Knowest thou not that I have the power to not pay for your braces or your Nike shoes? Right? Knowest thou not that I have the power to take your phone away? Knowest thou not that I have the power to make your life really miserable on this job? Knowest thou not that I have the power to withhold your paycheck or fire you? We may not like it, but the power that people have in positions of authority over us, God says, I gave that to them. I gave that to them. He say, well, that's crooked. And, God, and Solomon says, that's right. And that's what I'm trying to tell you, that God makes some things crooked. And who can make it straight? Will you accept his ways or not? Even in this unjust trial and murder of Jesus, he still submitted to the authority over him. Why? Because he recognized that this moment is unjust and it's not fair and it's not right, but it is what God is allowing. And so I submit. God places people in positions of authority for his purposes, whether we like that purpose or not. In the government, in the home, in the marriage, in the church, all institutions are structured with authority. And Psalms and Proverbs, they teach us that God raises up kings and people in positions of authority and God takes them out of those positions of authority. So if you're in a position of authority, be careful because that's God-ordained power. And He can take it away from you like that. It's not something you deserve or you earn. It comes from God. But that's another message. It's not an accident that people are in the position of authority therein. God placed them there. And those who are wise, those who fear God, find a way to cheerfully submit to the authority structures in their life. And so God is speaking through Solomon, and He's instructing us to honor those in those leadership positions. Okay, so questions like this flood our minds. We're, we're Americans, right? Um, we know the history of our country. We understand that. We understand the, the revolution we went through before. So if I'm supposed to honor those in leadership positions over us, over myself. Is that always the case? Are there exceptions? And when is it my duty to disobey? Because we like asking those types of questions. Okay, there were some powerful Israelites in Jerusalem. Okay, not all Israelites are good people or were good people. And they were in Jerusalem, and they demanded that Peter stop preaching the gospel. See, you stop preaching the gospel. You're not going to do it anymore. We're going to stone you. We're going we're, we're, we're to we're beat you. And they did these things. And Peter answers the ruler. This is a simple, uneducated fisherman. 
And he just says this, in wisdom, as his face no doubt shines, as Stephen's was when he was stoned to death, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's wisdom. Well, I got to obey God rather than men. See, when it comes to conflict between God and man, we obey the higher authority. That's what God's Word allows. There would be appropriate times for citizens to stand for what's right in the midst of wickedness. But we can still resist without violating God's principles, and He has a lot of them here. And too many today resist, and they have within them a spirit of rebellion. And it appeals to our sin nature. And we chalk it up to Christianity or conservatism, and we're wrong for it. Some Christians have become so politically active that they put their politics ahead of their Christianity. They have a worse attitude. They have a worse spirit than the power against which they are resisting. And they themselves become the greater evil. We have to be guarded here in their attitudes and their spirit. They become more unchristian than the unchristians that they're opposing. You don't fight evil with a rebellious heart, with a pushback type disposition and win. There's nowhere in God's word that's, that's permitted. In fact, the opposite is true over and over and over again that Jesus teaches. You fight evil with godliness and godliness looks very different than rebellious spirit and heart. Jesus fought evil with godliness. Yeah, well, he lost. Pilate gave permission and they killed him. Yeah, he died. And then he won. Big time. And it may cost you too to be godly. And it may not always look the way you think it should look. And it may look really crooked. And it may be unjust and fair in that moment. But God promises there's victory there. You fight. I am not saying don't fight, but you fight with godliness. You fight with the spirit of Christ, not the spirit of rebellion. Godliness always wins. You are called, number one, before we're Americans or citizens of any other country, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are called to be salt and light in the world. And you are called to have wisdom, to avail yourself to wisdom, and to make a difference. And you can't be different if you look and sound the same with just a different agenda. If you have the same sour, bitter, anti-authority disposition that lost people have, then you have nothing to offer this world and nothing to offer those that don't know Jesus Christ. We are called to be different. We're called to be wise. And wisdom is found in the fear of God. And when it is found, it is reflected in the face. And Solomon says, I interviewed all these people. He said, I can hardly find this anywhere. Wisdom is found in submitting to the authority over you. We don't get to ignore this and just walk away from it without suffering severe consequences in our personal lives, in our home, in our country. There are consequences if we look at that and say, well, it doesn't apply to the is area, but it does. And we're going to suffer relational consequences. We're going to suffer consequences in our church. We're going to suffer consequences in our country. 
You're going to cut, suffer consequences in your job environment. It's a big deal to God, and He addresses it throughout His Word. When we fail to honor authority, we do so to our own hurt. So a moment ago, we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, that talked about how all power is ordained of God. It's given by God. It comes from God. In verse 2, it says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power. Now, Jesus said the right words. He didn't resist the power. He says, He resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. When are we supposed to resist? Well, when it conflicts with obeying God or man. Okay, outside of that, when it becomes to, okay, we have to honor God first. So now we have to resist because, because we're honoring God. But everything else? Mm-mm. No, you and you're resisting God himself. And Solomon said it this way. I want you to look in verse 3. He says, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Whose sight? The king's sight. In other words, don't run away from him. Don't escape this principle. Don't think you can make it on your own without impunity. He says, stand not in an evil thing. Don't resist the authority is what he's saying. He doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Okay, let's contextualize this and put this in historical context this morning. The people to whom Solomon is writing would have had a sensitivity to authority that we have a hard time imagining because we have never lived under authority, at least the majority of us, like these people did. Eastern rulers held in their hand the power of life and of death, and it was arbitrary to them. They didn't have to get approval from other people to kill you. They used their power capriciously. It was like, if I feel like it, if I'm having a bad day, if I don't like the way you look, then I'm not going to rule favorably towards you. It's just capricious. It was like they could just do what they wanted to. Solomon himself was guilty of putting his own people under heavy yoke of bondage. These men were not elected by the people, and they were not answerable to them. Some leaders were benevolent. But for the most part, they were tyrannical despots who permitted nothing to stand in their way of fulfilling their desires. That's the people he's writing to. Totally different from our perspective today. We get upset because we watch something on, on the news and we get all bent out of shape about it. And it doesn't even sometimes often affect us. These people would have affected them in a dramatic way. And God is asking these people, and he's asking us today through Solomon, to honor the authority in their lives. Okay, there's a carrot, shining face, okay, wisdom, and there's a stick. Okay, or else. Or else. Okay, in the context of church authority, the writer of Hebrews wrote, Obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they must give account. And he says this, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. So the account that rulers in a church would give for your life, your involvement, your spirit, your attitude, your heart. Yep, let me tell you about this person. Okay, he says, if they give a bad report of your life and your membership at the church, and your involvement in the kingdom of God, he says that's unprofitable for you. Not a good thing. Those who resist authority structures bring harm to themselves. And the examples in the Bible are endless. 
Eve resisted the authority structure and hurt her, hurt all of us. Abel hurt himself, didn't want to do things God's way. Those who rebelled against Moses hurt themselves. Absalom hurt himself. If, if I went around this room today, we would all have stories of people we know who pushed back against authority structures and then they personally suffered for it. And maybe some of us would give our own testimony to that example. It's always true. If we disobey and dishonor authority, we suffer the negative consequences for it. Okay. But, okay, back to the carrot. Those who honor and obey the authority in their life, they find safety. Look at verse 5, the first part of verse 5. He says, Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. Obedience has God's blessing. Submitting to the rule of law keeps us safe from harm. How do I know when to resist and when to submit? How do I know what I'm supposed to do? How do, how do I know what kind of spirit I'm supposed to have? How do I know when it's right and how do I know when it's wrong? Great questions. Okay, here's the answer. Wisdom, it helps us to know the right way to live, which includes submitting to the authority over us. Second part of verse 5. And a wise man's heart discerneth both what? Time and judgment. Okay, there is a time to, to speak up and there is a time to not say a word. There, there, there is a time to, 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 to interact and to vote a certain way and to do a certain thing, and there's a time not to. Time and judgment. A wise man's heart, it discerneth. Time and judgment. A wise person has a sense of God's timing and understanding, understanding that supersedes human understanding. And wisdom guides us to do the right thing in the right way with the right heart at the right time. And Solomon says, you better find it. He says, you can't just go get it, but you're going to have to find it in the Lord. Let, let me say something really quick. And I'm winding down. I'm almost done. I don't know what time it is. To those of us who are under authority, okay, myself included, and I, I, would, I would say this. I think most, not all, but most, moms and dads and bosses and pastors are trying to keep and help those that are under authority. And I would challenge you with this. Help them back. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be always right. But you help them back and you're helping yourself and you're helping them. Young people, help your parents. I have yet to meet a perfect pair of parents. I didn't have them. I am far from one. But you make your life no better by resisting their authority. And you're fighting against. Hey, look at me, every one of you. You're fighting against God. You push back against them. Yep, I know they're not perfect. Now, I know this has boundaries, and if there's abuse or something else going on that's different, we'll deal with that separately. But I'm saying this, God puts you in, your, in that home with those parents. That's God's authority in your life. You resist it, you resist Him. And you do so to your hurt. And to your parents' hurt, to your family's hurt, to your siblings' hurt, to the rest of your life hurt. Don't do that. Submit. This is wisdom. To submit cheerfully with the right heart, with the right spirit. If you're fighting with your spouse today, or any day, you don't like the way that they lead, you might be hurting yourself. 
And you might be hurting your own cause by not submitting to them. I would throw this out there. So we have to be so careful here. The Bible instructs mutual submission between a husband and a wife. So husbands are charged with responsibility of the home, not supreme power or lordship. They are to defer and to serve and to put their wife first. They point the direction, we're going to church, but you put that woman first and you serve her and you cherish her and you love her as much or more than you love yourself. That's the instruction from the Bible. You treat her like Jesus Christ treats his church. But there has to be some submission between the two of you. And don't use anything that I say today as a weapon in your home. <laughs> this sermon is about our attitudes. It's about our hearts. It's about how it's supposed to be reflected in, a, in our faces. If you're a citizen of a country that you're frustrated with, disappointed in, ask for God's help to be a better Christian so that you can become part of the solution and not more of the problem. A sour spirit, an ugly disposition, and a rebellious tone do nothing to help yourself or your country. You'll gain a lot more influence if you'll do things God's way with the kind of attitude and action He would have you take, and that comes through wisdom. The authority in our church isn't perfect. I've been around it for a long time, and I'm part of it. Those in positions of leadership from Pastor Durrell all the way down have made, are making, and will make mistakes. And we're going to disappoint you and frustrate you at some point. You're not going to find a perfect spouse. You can trade them out as many times as you want, and you're not going to find one. You're not going to have perfect children. It doesn't matter how many you have. You're not going to ever have a perfect government. Don't expect perfect leadership from a church. We can't agree with you about everything. If we were that way, we couldn't have a church. If we agree with you about everything, then we disagree with everyone else about everything. <laughs> and too many people leave church, or they fight back, and they create a mess. Those are really bad solutions. You suffer for it. Everyone else around you suffers for it, and it does no good. Those who are wise, they honor the authority in their life. And if you would do that, you'll be happier for it. You'll be better for it. Your family will be better for it. Society will be better for it. Your work environment will be better for it. Our church will be better off for it. Your face will be better off for it. And we have to start by this, saying, God, I need your wisdom. I need your help to align my view to yours and not yours to mine. Not the view of others, not the view of the media or Sean Hannity or whoever you listen to, not the view of friends and social media and political figures. Authority is not always good to us. Chapter 7 last week, God makes some things crooked. And authority is not always good to us. Got it. Accept him for who he is. But this is where Christianity is supposed to shine. Not when things are good and easy, when things are more challenging and difficult. This is where the face shines. This is where the boldness comes through. This is where our attitudes are right. 
We don't react and respond like the rest of the world because we're different than the rest of the world. We have hope that the rest of the world doesn't have. We have joy. We have light. We have peace. And we have wisdom. And so let those things be reflected in your face and let those things be reflected in your actions. Okay, question this morning and we're done. Does your face communicate the presence of wisdom or its absence? Is wisdom rare in your life? Are you part of the 999 Solomon looked at? Or are you part of the one? Is it there? And if it's absent, you don't just get it. You find it in God. Wisdom comes from Him and it makes life so much better. It'll make the pursuit of wisdom will make life so much better than even the pursuit of money in your life. And we need to pursue it. And we need to ask Him for it today. Let me ask you to stand if you would, heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to have a brief moment of invitation today.